This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Roswell investigator Thomas Carey is here. He's the co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of a brand new book on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and Thomas will be here for the full two hours. The true nature of what actually crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 remains classified. Only a selected few have ever had access to the truth. But what happened to the remnants of that crash is shrouded in even greater mystery. What began in the high desert of New Mexico ended at Wright-Patterson, an ultra-top-secret Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. The physical evidence of extraterrestrial visitation was buried deep within this nuclear stronghold. How tragic that such seismic news should be kept from the people of the world. Pieces of history now quickly dwindling into oblivion as the last of the secret keepers passes on. Thomas J. Carey has a master's degree in anthropology from California State and has also received a fellowship to pursue a Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Toronto. Thomas became interested in UFOs while in high school and rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. Since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell Incident. He is the co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Thomas Carey, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Nice to be with you, Richard. Beautiful day today, and uh, let's have at it. All right. (laughs) First of all, we have to uh, note, of course, the book is dedicated to Stanton Friedman. He wrote the foreword to UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. Last week on the program, your your co-author... Don Schmidt and I, uh, we, uh, we did an, an hour tribute to Stanton. Let me just get your, your thoughts on, uh, the passing of this, uh, giant ufologist recently. Well, he certainly was a giant. Uh, he was the go-to guy when, uh, anybody wanted to do a, like a documentary. Uh, he was, he was the, well, since, a, you know, since the 19, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, he was uh, the point person for all things UFO. And without Stanton, 
uh, we wouldn't be talking here tonight about Roswell or uh, the UFO secrets at uh, Wright-Patterson. Because uh, 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 when he was uh, giving a talk down in Louisiana, I think it was Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 1978, Somebody said that one of the producers of the show said, you ought to talk to this fellow um, who was Jesse Marcel. Uh, you ought to talk to him because uh, he says he handled pieces of wreckage from a UFO. And uh, on his way out, Stanton called him and thus began the civilian investigation of Roswell. Without that phone call, there's no Roswell story. Remarkable. So, so Stanton... Uh, he is one of the few, I'll have to say, uh, that actually made a living <laughs> out of UFOs with all the speeches he gave, you know. And uh, a lot of people go into UFO, uh, oh, I'm going to have a magazine or something. It, it, you know, but Stanton was totally dedicated to, uh, quote unquote, UFOs are real. That was his first big message. And uh, every summer or every July... Uh, Don Schmidt and I, we go down to Roswell, and uh, they have the UFO festival down there. And uh, Stanton is at a table right next to us, and it's not just not going to be the same this year. It, uh, we had him, we had him do the forward for our book, and we dedicated this book to Stanton, the one we're talking about yes. tonight. Yes. And it was just uh, we didn't we didn't know anything, you know, that anything was uh, amiss. And uh, it, uh, it I mean, to, I, I don't want to use the word fortuitous, but it was uh, ironic that uh, this book we're talking about tonight was dedicated to Stanton. And he actually wrote the forward to it. So very, uh, he will be severely missed. Um, I don't know what else to say. Uh, it just won't. I know it won't be the same down there in uh, next month without him. Right, right. And uh, I looked upon him as a colleague. We were both on the same side of history, and uh, we were, I guess, uh, colleagues more than competitors because we. Both believed in the Roswell case uh, was a case of extraterrestrial visitation. We disagreed on a few, not many, uh, a few things, a uh, witness or two, uh, MJ-12 papers and things like that. But that that never stood in the way of anything because uh, I'm sure he disagreed with us. But we both recognize, and this goes for Don as well, that uh, we're on the same side uh, fighting the battle uh, next to one another instead of against one another. Sure. I've, I've heard you and Don talk about how when it came to the Roswell investigation, you you were and, and are in, in a race with The Undertaker because not only the witnesses are, are gone, now many of the children of the witnesses yeah. are, are getting up there in age and many we of them even, have passed on. We even have some grandchildren that have passed on. Right. Right. Yes, uh, I, I would estimate, uh, as we're talking here, that the 99% of the first-hand witnesses, the participants and that sort of thing, uh, are either gone or at that stage in life where you, you can't interview them. Right, you know? right. Uh, they're, so they're, they're go just gone. 
And I'm sure there are a few still out there that have something to say, but we don't know who they are, and they're not coming forward. And likely they'll take what they know to the grave. Yes. Uh, but is it would this be a fair assessment that the the trail in Roswell is, as we say, you know, you're in a race with the undertaker. It's it's almost cold, but now you can pick it up at Wright Patterson Airfield, which you which you have done with with Don in your work. Yes, this this book we have out tonight came out about two weeks ago, and uh, it's like. The, the crash and recovery was the first stage or the first chapter. The delivery and what happened to it after it got to Wright-Patterson or Wright-Field back then is the second stage of the case. First stage was the crash, recovery. The second stage is what went on at Wright-Patterson after the bodies and the uh, wreckage uh, were delivered there. That's what this book is about. Right. Now, it's interesting because Wright-Patterson, like Area 51, is is shrouded in secrecy. But unlike Area 51, we actually know a fair bit about the the origins of Wright-Patterson, its its beginnings. And you, you talk about its its early history uh, in UFO Secrets Insight Wright-Pat. Just, just tell us a little bit about its origins uh, involving the Wright brothers and so forth. Yes. Uh, uh, first of all, if you and I do this when I give a talk, I say, how many of you in the audience have ever heard of Area 51? And all the hands go up. How many of you have heard of Wright Patterson? And very few hands go up. But uh, Wright Patterson was um, basically Area 51 before there was an Area 51. The, uh, the Wright brothers uh, had a bicycle shop in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And they started working on this newfangled contraption called an aeroplane. And, uh, of course, they had the first flight down in North Carolina at Kitty Hawk, somewhere around 1903. And so they, uh, they bought a stretch of land outside of Dayton, Ohio, in a, a Huffman Plain. It was a flat area. And uh, so that's where they started developing, uh, continuing the development of their airplane. But they lost control of the uh, of the land mass there uh, with World War One. When World War One came along, the U.S. government confiscated the Huffman plane, and they put up another. Uh, uh, they put up an airport. Now I don't want to go through all the names no, no. of because they went through so many different names. For these two air airfields, uh, uh, it was Wilbur Wright Field, and then it, the other one was Orville. Uh, see, I'm already mixed up with <laughs> it. They, there were two, there were two locations. One was Wright Field, and the other was uh, Patterson, which was named after a World War One flyer who was killed uh, landing there. And so you have Wright Field and Patterson Field, and uh, it really came to prominence uh, during World War II. During World War I, it was more like a supply depot where they supplied a lot of things to the nascent uh, Air, Corp, Air Corps, as it was called. But uh, World War II comes along, and it really expands. 
and uh, they have divisions there. They have intelligence. They have engineering. They have supply. It was basically the heart and soul of the Air Corps, or as in World War II, it was called the Army Air Forces. And it was the beating heart of the, the Air, Air Corps. And part of that was uh, uh, they, they had a division called the Air Materiel Command, and that was divided up into intelligence and engineering. So what they wanted to get their hands on were uh, crashed or uh, captured Axis aircraft, Messerschmitts, Mitsubishis, and things like that to see what made them go and how we could uh, defeat them in battle. And uh, that was the job of uh, the Foreign Technology Division. Now, the Foreign Technology Division went through many name changes, and it, my head spins when I try to <laughs> try to keep track of them, but we'll T just call it T2. At T2 T at this time, wasn't it? Yes, it was T2, yes. Then it became, I think, ATIC, then it became FTD, and it's, I think it's NASIC now, but I, I, I could be wrong on that. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't, I won't apologize if I'm wrong because they went through so many name changes. But it was uh, intelligence, and the Messerschmitts and Mitsubishi Zeros uh, went to there – was, there was a hangar there, Hangar 23. Mm-hmm. That's where all of the foreign technology went to try to reverse engineer, uh, tear them apart to find out what made them tick, uh, how we could defeat them. So uh, when this, uh, you know, and it, it keeps expanding and uh, uh, intelligence was there and uh, it was the uh, heart and soul of the. Army Air Forces during World War II, and then, then the U.S. Air Force when it became a separate branch in uh, September of 1947, right after the Roswell crash. Right, right. We get into so, the summer of 47, uh, the, the, the UFO panic, as you call it, uh, or the Pentagon panic in 1947. Yes. Um, at that point, uh, was was uh, General uh, Nathan Twining, was he stationed at, uh, was he in charge of T2 at Wright Pat? Yes. Uh, General Nathan, uh, I forget his middle initial. Uh, oh, Nathan F, I think it's F Twining. Anyway, he was in charge of the T2 Air Materiel Command. Uh, I don't know, he had either three or four stars. He ultimately became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, with four stars and uh, we were uh, good friends with his son Nathan Jr who really uh, uh, was uh, 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 taken with our work on Roswell and so Nate Jr became a good friend of ours he passed away I want to say two years ago right and, uh, so yes uh, Air Materiel Command was uh uh, FTD, foreign technology. I'm just so, sorry. Uh, go ahead. I was no. Go ahead. I was going to ask you about the timing because of the Twining memo, which is held out as you know one of the great 
sort of smoking gun documents. Here is Nathan Twining talking about these craft flat on the bottom, domed on the top, the aerial maneuvers. They can, you know, outmaneuver anything that we have. I don't think it's a, you know, a, a Soviet craft. What could it be? He's sort of reaching out asking. Now, is he, is, if he's at, uh, right pad at this point, and he's seeing probably, you know, crash debris from the latest and the best, you know, uh, um, aircraft from our adversaries. Uh, I'm just wondering about the timing of that. Did that memo come out before Roswell, after Roswell? Oh, that was uh, September of 1947. So it was a month or so after uh, the, the crash, yes. Uh, he was responding to a letter or memo, whatever you want to call it, from... Uh, uh, Brigadier General Shulgin in Washington, because he was getting, uh, he was in intelligence in Washington with the uh, Air Corps, Army Air Corps, soon to be U.S. Air Force. He was getting a lot of questions about uh, flying saucers, as they called them back then. And so uh, he wrote to uh, T2 in uh, uh, Wright Patterson. What hey what got what can you guys tell me you know I, I got these people on my back they want to know about this I I, I I don't know what to tell them and so that's what uh, Twining was responding to he we, he gave a list of things that he says it, uh, the flying saucers are not something fictitious they were real and then he gave a list of reasons of their characteristics. And that was the so-called uh, Twining Memo, which went to Brigadier General Shugan in intelligence in Washington. Well, th- th- I mean, that's the timing is important. If it's September 47 and Roswell, July 47. And so at that point, one would suspect the crash debris had already arrived at Wright Pat and Twining might have already had a chance to look at it. Well, we have stories that uh, Twining, when the crash happened, right after it happened, he flew, whatever his itinerary was, he flew to Alamogordo, New Mexico, to view the wreckage and the, the, some of the bodies. And uh, so that's, we don't have that part nailed down, but there's a, a number of witnesses who said that Twining went to Alamogordo for a couple of days, right when the crash happened. But uh, we do know as for fact now that uh, the wreckage went to Wright Field, as it was called back then. Uh, the uh, Right after the crash, this would be, it, it started um, the first flight to Washington was a special flight on July 6th. 1947. This is before all the wreckage is even coming into the into the base. Uh, it's part of the stuff that Jesse Marcel brought back, and uh, Washington wanted to get a look at this stuff ASAP. So on the sixth, there's a special flight to Washington with some of the wreckage. So they got it. We know they got it on the sixth, but the stuff started going to right field starting on the seventh. And then the eighth and the ninth, that includes the bodies. So that first week, a uh, little more than a week of July, 
most of that stuff is already at right right field. So uh, Twining absolutely had a look at it. Now, in terms of the chronology here, now um, Jesse Marcel he originally accompanied uh, the the wreckage to Fort Worth, correct? Yes. And then didn't Roger Ramey on officially at least officially cancel saying we're not you're not going to write Pat. Uh, it was supposed to go from Fort Worth to Wright Pat, and then officially, at least on the record, he said, "No, we're not flying to Wright Pat." Yes, that was all histrionics, uh, Richard. Uh, he had the press there, plus some others, and uh, uh, they had the balloon on the floor, and there were all these rumors about little bodies and uh, flying saucer, and he canceled that flight. It's we got the stuff here. There's no need for that flight. Cancel that flight. Well, it never was canceled. We know that's a fact because all the stuff did go there. But there's a uh, a telex from the FBI, uh, from the FBI office in Dallas that they learned from uh, Ramey's, uh, one of his high officers there. I don't know if it's the uh, chief of staff or the uh, public information officer, a guy named Curtin. Uh the FBI learned from him that the flight was not canceled, and it's all in a memo from uh, FBI Dallas to the director with a copy to Cincinnati that uh, the fact that it was canceled is not true, that the flight is on its way to right field. So we have a document that shows that, plus we know from eyewitnesses that it uh, arrived uh, at the right field at that time. Uh, one of those witnesses would be uh, Captain Oliver Pappy Henderson, who actually piloted the the, the plane. Correct? Yes, he uh, Pappy Henderson had the uh, second flight, this the so called second body flight, plus some wreckage. July nine. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He had the first uh, the first body flight on July eight. Where uh, one of the C-54 uh, aircraft that flew directly from Roswell to Wright Field without stopping in between. Uh, he flew wreckage and he flew bodies. And the bodies upset him because he didn't, according to a, 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 he told a friend that uh, he, he didn't like dead things. He just didn't like dead things. And he only glanced at the bodies that were on the floor inside the hangar. He said they had big heads and uh, uh, slanted eyes, and they just made him, he started getting queasy. But he saw enough that they they weren't human. And uh, his flight, we have, uh, we've identified one crewman on his flight. And uh, it went straight to right field on July 8th. 1947. This is the same day as that uh, press conference in General Ramey's office where he canceled the flight. Pappy Henderson's flying to right field. And uh, of course, the press didn't know about that. They were they were uh, thinking of the Marcel flight because Marcel was originally ticketed to go to from Fort Worth to right field. But uh, Ramey canceled that flight, or so he said. All right. But in meanwhile, all that's taking place. Pappy Henderson is already flying directly to 
right field from Roswell. The press didn't know about that. Thomas, we'll uh, take a quick timeout. We'll pick it up on the other side. UFO secrets inside Wright-Patterson. Eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Thomas Carey, co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. We were talking about Pappy Henderson, uh, who piloted the plane uh, containing the Roswell UFO crash uh, debris and bodies to Wright-Pat. And you mentioned Building 23. And uh, I want to talk about, you know, this is part of the uh, the mythos of of right pat is uh, we we all talk about hangar 18 hangar 18 but there isn't a hangar 18 um where did that how did that get started hangar that was, 18 uh, that was one of the interesting things about doing this book was that uh, we finally solved what happened with that hangar 18 story and uh there was never a hangar 18 per se but what happened was in, uh, at on the base, there was what they called the Building 18 clump Complex. It consisted of buildings, Building 18 through 18, uh, 18G, nine buildings there. In that complex, there's one hangar, Hangar 23. That's remember now. That's that hangar where all that back engineering stuff went. Right during World War II, one hangar in that that complex, and it's Hangar Twenty Three. So where and when did that uh, could that be Hangar Eighteen? Could that be the Hangar Eighteen that uh, people were talking about? So we did a back uh, backtracking, and uh, I first went to the the uh, book, The Roswell Incident by uh, William Moore and uh, Charles Berlitz. Actually, it was Stanton Friedman, but uh, Stan didn't have a big name, I guess, at that time. I don't know. But they, the Roswell Incident men, men, mentioned nothing about a Hangar 18. But I remembered that there was this movie called Hangar 18 that came out the same year as the book. Right. 1980. Darren McGavin. Darren McGavin. No, no, no. Uh, the guy, the guy, man from uncle. Uh, 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 Robert, Robert Vaughn. Robert Vaughn. Yeah. But McGavin was in it, too. Was he in it, too? Yes. So I'm sitting there watching. I remember I was sitting there watching Johnny Carson one night. No one comes, Darren, uh, um, Robert Vaughn. And Johnny says, well, how you doing, Robert? Uh, well, what's up? He said, well, I just finished the movie. What's it called? Hangar 18. But the thing was, when he said that, I knew what he was talking about. So I must have heard it from somebody earlier, but I didn't know where. So we contacted the uh, screenwriter slash director of the movie Hangar 18, a fellow by the name of James Conway. We said, okay, Jim, where did, where did you hear this Hangar 18 thing? He says, oh, I heard that I, it was in the, it was in being talked about. It was being talked about, bandied about in the early 1970s. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what what is that? 
So that that didn't lead me to the promised land. So I'm an Air Force veteran. Uh, I get the uh, Air Force magazine. Uh, it's I think it's bi-monthly. It's not monthly, but I, I subscribe to the Air Force magazine. And they did a story oh, a couple of years ago about UFOs, uh, how the Air Force was – uh, uh, they did a really good job. They were uh, they didn't deserve all the uh, uh, calumny that they uh, got from their handling of UFOs. But in that story, they talked about Roswell, and they said, uh, "Hangar 18, this fellow in Florida, this professor in Florida, started talking about Hangar 18, where all the bodies were stored." And I said, oh, that's right. And what that was, uh, Richard, I remembered now that in 1974, I was just about to get on a plane to go to Toronto to start my four years of schooling there. Mm -hmm. And all the talk was from this so-called Professor Robert Spencer Carr talking about Hangar 18 and all these uh, Flying saucer bodies, that's where they were stored. I remember that like it was yesterday, but I had forgotten it. It started with this fellow in Florida. He was a no professor. He had a high school education, but he, t he was like a UFO buff. And uh, he got Florida. is a great uh, retirement place for military, right? Sure. And he heard the stories about this Hangar 18 at Wright Patterson from all these retirees that would come up to him after he would give a talk. They, oh, I know, I know this thing up at Wright, Wright Patterson. They got this hangar 18 where all, where all these bodies are stored. So that's where that the, the, the story got into the public domain. But why was it called hangar 18? If there is no hangar 18, well in the book, which I'm holding <laughs> <laughs> in the book, we have a schematic of area B at Wright Patterson where it shows the building 18 complex. And there's that one hangar in building 18 in, in, in uh, that complex hangar 23. They were, it's commonly referred to as hangar 18 because it's in that 18 complex. Right, right. All those buildings in there are building 18, a 18 B so and so and so and so. So they just started calling it Hangar 18, but it's really uh, Hangar 23. But common parlance, it's Hangar 18. And interesting enough, right across the back alley from Hangar 18, uh, 1823, there's Building 18F, and that's the cold that used to be the cold storage building be before they had air uh -huh. conditioning, and, and that's where the bodies were kept. Because we have a guy that used to work uh, in a building uh, near there. He said on hot summer days, you got the smell coming out of there. It smelled like dead fish. Right. Know? And formaldehyde. And formaldehyde. Right, right. And because the, because the, the, the vents inside open to the outside. And this is before air conditioning. 
And he said, oh, it smelled like formaldehyde. Another fellow said it smelled like dead fish. So the proximity of the two, the back engineering of the wreckage and the storage of the bodies early on, right there. Meanwhile, the meanwhile, though, the, uh, between the, the Conway uh, screenplay and this uh, car gentleman down in Florida, they gave uh, the uh, the folks at Wright Pat kind of cover because every time a researcher or a tourist started poking around saying, can I see Hangar 18? They could honestly say there is no such building. And there never was. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I want They're to talk. Absolutely right. But it, it's a it's a play on words. They should they should say, OK, show what's the building where the bodies were kept. In fact, we have it in the book. Uh, we have people who talk to. Uh, to workers at uh, Wright Patterson, uh, they would, and they told them, they said, "Yes, the the bodies are here, but I can't, I I, I don't know where they're at." Uh, they 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 admit now that the bodies were there or are there when they were questioned, but but they would say, "I don't know where, I don't know where, but they're here." Wow. Listen, when we come back, I want to delve into the foreign technology division a little bit. We'll talk about. Uh, attempts to reverse engineer. We'll talk about Colonel Philip Corso uh, and, and his testimony and whether these are whether his testimony was credible. And uh, uh, we'll get uh, further into uh, the uh, Building 18 Complex, Hangar 23, and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. My guest, Thomas Carey, author, co-author of UFO Secrets, Inside Wright Pat, eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thomas Carey, co-author, UFO Secrets Inside, Wright Patterson, eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. Uh, there's a great quote in the book, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, uh, but it's, it speaks to the, the whole conundrum of trying to reverse engineer when we're talking about, you know, 1947, and you had this, you know, alien, advanced alien technology, uh, but you ha- have, you know, the terrestrial science of the day. So the quote is, you know, if you can't plug the thing in, you can't get it to work or, or something to that effect. If you don't know how to plug it in, you're not going to figure out how it works. So talk to me about, you know, the, the the challenges they must have had trying to back engineer, reverse engineer this technology. And what would have been, do you suppose, the procedure? <laughs> the procedure, uh, we got it from people who were given the wreckage as to what the procedure was they um like a, there's a fellow there's a, his name was Elroy Center he was a chemical engineer they said one day they dumped this wreckage on my desk they said figure out what this stuff is and so they gave that to various people with different specialties to and no one knew what the other was doing. See, that's the old compartmentalization, you know. And uh, so they'd give it to a chemist. They'd give it to a physicist. They'd give it to some different people to try to figure out what made this stuff tick. And that's how they did it. There was no – I mean, there was no procedure for this other than, you know, you can't compare a, a Mitsubishi with a 
uh, a ship that just traveled through the stars, you know, uh, but they did their best. And we even heard uh, years later that they still hadn't figured out what it was. So we're, uh, it, it was uh, that's that's how they did it. They also right up the street was this Patel Memorial Institute. It was a combination think tank and metallurgy place. They uh, farmed out this memory metal. This You can't cut it. You can't destroy it. And you can wad it up in your hand, and it just floats out there. And they gave a contract to the Battelle Memorial Institute in 1948 to figure out what this memory metal was and to try to replicate it. And it took them years to do it. And uh, they came up with something called nitinol. Yes. Dr. Frank Wang. Yes. And uh, we had uh, one of our associates interviewed Dr. Wang, and everything was going fine until our interviewer mentioned Roswell. Mm. (laughs) And, boy, the guy couldn't hang up fast enough. And uh, there were long pause, and he says, "I, I, I won't talk about that, something like that. But that's what they did. They farmed it out to uh, Battelle. We even had another fellow from Lawrence Livermore, another laboratory owned by Battelle out in California. Uh, He even sent sent us a picture of a little piece of this stuff. Doesn't look like much. It's just like a little square. And uh, uh, so they did their best and they came up with something called Nitinol, it's a, an amalgam of nickel tit- and titanium. And there's a special processing that goes with it that was pointed out by uh, General Arthur Exxon, who was the base commander in the mid-60s. He said, uh, someone asked him, well, what's that, what's that stuff made out of? And he says, well, one of the elements is titanium, uh, and I don't know what the other is, but the, the, the processing is different which turned out to be true. So they put this amalgam of nickel and titanium together. And so you have N-I-T-I and the N-O-L. It's interesting. Uh, The project leader at Battelle farmed out this project also to the Naval Ordnance Lab in Washington. You see the Washington or Maryland. the Naval Ordnance Lab. So in 1962, instead of having Battelle announce the discovery or the, the development of this this uh, self-shaped, uh, self-healing metal, nitinol, the Navy did it. And that's where the NOL, it stands for NI, nickel, TI, titanium, NOL, Naval Ordnance Lab. Actually, what what they did is they laundered the project to the Navy. See, so they didn't. The Patel didn't want any part of this. Any connection to Roswell? Yes, yes. So they laundered it to laundered it to the Navy, and they announced this nitinol. It's not as good as the original. I mean, the original was indestructible, but you can buy it by the sheet, by the roll, by the by the, uh, you know, uh, you know, you got eyeglasses. The frame, the frames are made out of nitinol. Some of them, 
because it has bendability. And it's based on uh, Roswell memory metal. Fantastic. Listen, we'll I take another, another quick time out, Thomas. We'll come back and uh, talk about some of the other uh, reverse technology projects at Wright-Patterson. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio. Thomas, you were just about to tell uh, us the story of uh, then um, Lieutenant Governor, sort of second in command in New Mexico, uh, Joseph Montoya, who happened to be at the uh, 509 airfield um, when the uh, the debris, I guess, the crash debris was taken to the airfield. What was he doing there? He was there uh, dedicating a, an aircraft. And uh, the the wreckage and the bodies started coming in when he was there and uh, the you have to figure that the base commander went on leave we know he didn't go on leave he went he went out to the crash site the governor of New Mexico split he was supposed to be going down to Roswell uh, to de- to uh, dedicate the Air Force Day or something like that. He split to the mountains. Uh, every it was like all people in uh, uh, positions of authority that might be called upon to for an explanation. They all got out of Dodge. Right, know? right. So that left uh, Sosa Joseph Montoya by himself, and uh, he had a few uh, Montoyistas or young young people who were uh, supporters of his. They were called Montoyistas. Uh, and so he went over to the hangar area to do visit with them. And while he was there, in comes the, the first parts of the wreckage and the little bodies, and he he lost it. He, he, he said, oh, my goodness, what, what, is, what is this? And he saw the little bodies with the big heads. And he says, "Where's the phone? Get where's the phone? Get me the nearest phone." <laughs> so he called. Uh, he called a local Montoyista in Roswell. Get over here. Get me the hell out of here as quick as I can. I'll be over by the water tower. Well, the water tower is still there. The hangar is still there. And they they went and got Mon- Montoya and drove him to uh, their house. And this, uh, the, the fellow's name was Peter Anaya, local Montoyista. And uh, so they kept, they kept Montoya at the house to calm him down. He says, he says, what do you get me a drink? Do you have a drink? He says, well, we got some Jim Beam. He said, give me the bottle. He takes the bottle of Jim Beam and glug, 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 glug. He, he drains the bottle <laughs> and, he, and he collapses, goes to sleep on the couch. But according to, uh, Peter and uh, uh, his brother, uh, Ruben Anoya, uh, Anaya, it was a fitful sleep. He was jerking and always oh, just in horrible shape. This is even after a bottle of Jim Beam. And uh, so finally he wakes up and he says, OK, take me back to the uh, hotel. So they took him back to the Nixon Hotel in Roswell. Well, years later. In 2002, we're making a documentary 
for the sci-fi channel called uh, the Roswell Crash Startling New Evidence. It was a two-hour special for the sci-fi channel put together by Don and myself, Don Schmidt and myself. Uh, Bryant Gumbel was the host. Right. And uh, they interviewed Ruben and Pete Anaya on that show. Well, I was there when, you know, down in Roswell when they were interviewing them, and I noticed that uh, Pete Anaya's son, who was in his uh, early 30s, was there as well. So I went over to Pete Anaya's son. I said, hey, uh, you know, uh, and, and his son said, uh, he says, yes, I, I, wor- I worked for Senator Montoya. He was a uh, staffer of Senator Montoya. I said, well, did he ever tell you that story about that day down in Roswell? He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. I said, well, what are these? He says, it was all true. But if you ever ask, if anybody ever asked me about it, I will deny it entirely. But it mm. was all true. Right. So that gives you their, you know, they'll, they'll talk on the QT, but officially they, they, they don't want anything to do with UFOs, Roswell, paranormal, that sort of stuff. Right, right. Um, Actually, I think it was after that that sci-fi special aired, you received an email from a woman in Georgia who was a freshman at the University of Georgia back in the early 60s, and she had a roommate from Alabama who had an an interesting uh, story to tell about. Yeah. That is my longest-held lead. That lead lasted me 17 years. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> that's why when people go, they said, "Well, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down to Roswell this weekend and solve that case." Oh yeah, sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> but but this involved yeah, that's, that's what, this involves yeah. Operation Paperclip because I want to get into that. But yes, well this 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 lead 17 years. We I got this email. She's the this woman in in uh, Georgia went to the University of Georgia, and she saw our uh, Sci-Fi Channel special. She wrote to me and said that in 1964 she was a freshman at the University of Georgia, and her roommate, her father, was a uh, German who had come over with Operation Paperclip, and they flew him from. Uh, Fort uh, uh, in Texas, uh, Fort Bliss in yes. Texas to Fort Worth to do some uh, research on the wreckage. But while he was there, they told him, "Don't look at the, don't look at these little bodies." Of course, he looked at the little <laughs> bodies that were there, and I said, "Oh my goodness!" So for seventeen years, and I won't go through all the twists and turns. It took us, let's say, fifteen years to find. It was it turned out to be not the girl's father, but her boyfriend's father, hmm. and we were looking for the uh, for the wrong name. And it was through a fortuitous uh, publication of an article in a uh, local newspaper down there in Huntsville. The girl was from Huntsville, Alabama, where the, our space program is, and uh, her brother wrote an article in a newspaper saying, "Called growing up in a rocket." family or something like that and he had the same last name as this girl at the university of georgia and so i I sent the article to my source and she says oh my goodness we're looking for the wrong guy we want we want his 
her boyfriend's father, which had a different name. And uh, we uh, found we found the daughter that was her former roommate. And so we made plans that, that this, you know, that she would contact her and co- try to corroborate the story. Well, she did contact her even in person, but she never asked her the, the story. So I said, oh, my God, what am I, you know, this is 17 years now. Uh, yeah, how much longer do you want me to wait, you know? So uh, I called the girl, I, I, the, the woman myself. She was divorced twice, had two different last names, but we found her. I called her up. This is last year. And uh, first she did, uh, she remembered, oh, yeah, she was my roommate. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't remember that story. No, I, I don't. I don't remember that. And I said, oh, because this woman sounded like she was telling the truth. And by the end of her, then, then she got off the phone and I heard her talking to somebody in the back. And finally, she came back on. She, she said, well, I can't remember everything I ever said, which to me was a confirmation. She was walking it back. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But 17 years. Oh, my. For that one witness. It's a it's a record. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just have to laugh when you say, oh, we're, we're going down to Roswell this week. We're going to try to solve that. Case. Right. I mean, it is a swamp, isn't it? The whole Roswell yeah. investigation. Uh, but it does lead us into into a little more depth into Operation Paperclip. Uh, during which time the uh, the United States exfiltrated, I guess, somewhere between five and six hundred German scientists, totally young, uh, in and their families, uh, including, of course, the uh, the head of the V two rocket program, the Rocket Man himself, uh, Werner Werner von Braun. Um, we're coming up onto a break here. I just want to start, sort of, dip our toe into this conversation about Werner, and then we'll come back. But, but. Um, what do we know about von Braun's uh, coming and going at Wright Pat? Did he spend a lot of time there? Well, we never we never thought he did, but we have witnesses who said he was there a lot, and uh, which which made sense, you know, uh, being the uh, the, the, the uh, father of our, of our space program. And he would. Uh, the witness that we are, I'm thinking of, said that he was always accompanied by uh, security people, because he was, uh, you know, a paperclip German and uh, very important. But he was always accompanied by security, and they would go into this uh, hangar, stay there and come out. Go into this hangar, stay there. He was always going to the same place at Wright uh, Patterson. And uh, this particular witness said that he was a guard at this hangar, and that one day this uh, truck pulled up, backed in, and the hangar door closed, and the the truck was in there for a while, and then the, the, the hangar door opened, and out drove the truck, but there was something underneath the tarp in the back that was, uh, they said it was circular, I think it was the... Uh, the the um, inner cabin that we talked about before, because it was the size and shape of a Volkswagen Beetle under a tarp, just like it was described going down Main Street in uh, 1947. So that was the hangar where they kept the the uh, escape capsule or inner cabin. Whether they ever got into it or not, I don't know. 
back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, Thomas, this is a, a short segment, so but we can finish up on the Werner von uh, Braun story. So that so was he seen then coming and going from the infamous Blue Room? Well, you could speculate that it was the Blue Room or Hangar 18, but wherever what it, whether it was one or the other, out came this uh, this artifact from the Roswell crash. This uh, this uh, inner cabin or or uh, uh, what do you escape capsule? We don't know what else was in there, but it, we you, you can speculate that that's what it was. He he sort of talked in kind of vague terms about the ET presence here on Earth. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, you would figure that uh, being a uh, physicist, uh, space program, rocket development, that. Uh, that they that he and some of the high-ranking paperclip Germans who were brought over, starting in late 1945, and uh, originally they were housed at the Fort Bliss in Texas, uh, would be called to the crash site, and they were. Uh, uh, I think uh, the uh, astronaut uh, uh, James Mitchell, uh, Edgar uh, Edgar Mitchell, Edgar Mitchell. Yeah, I have so many names going. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I know. Space, I know. Names, dates, places. Uh, Edgar Mitchell mentioned that, and there were others who mentioned that. We uh, we we had a witness who put him there, plus uh, some of the other high-ranking ones. Uh, and uh, they, the Germans, felt that they were brought to the site to confirm that it wasn't Russian, that the what had crashed was not Russian. Well, they knew right away that it wasn't Russian, and they felt that that was their what they wanted from the Germans was to tell them that whether it was Russian or not. And uh, they, of course, said, no, this is uh, not Russian. So uh, he was at the crash site, and uh, he was very tight-lipped, but at some point he did reveal – that uh, uh, in an article in some in some journal and during a speech somewhere, and I think the words were, uh, "We we are confronted by a power much greater than our own," something to that effect. And uh, I know I'm I'm butchering the statement, but there was some some statement that that we are confronted with a power much greater than our own but we don't we and we don't know what their base home base is right right yeah something like that and uh so he knew he knew certainly he knew all the the higher ups and uh, he was the top man in the space program worked for uh, nasa worked for the army we got our first satellite uh, explorer one up because of him and uh, uh, he had a uh, second in command was a fellow by the name of Ernst Steinhoff, a, a nuclear, uh, a uh, physicist, engineer who had a similar career. 
but he stayed at mostly at uh, Alamogordo with the guided missile program rather than the space program. Although he was, he got interested in the space, and he's in the New York, uh, New York, <laughs> New Mexico uh, uh, Hall of Space Hall of Fame, and another one as well. Right. But it, these fellows were, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Von Braun died at age 65, which today is young. Yes. Uh, and uh, Steinhoff died at age 89 just a few years ago. But uh, uh, they they were there at the crash site. Uh, there were paperclip Germans stationed permanently at Wright, Wright Patterson and also at uh, Alamogordo Holloman Air Force Base. So they had a lot to do with our space program. And uh, after World War II, the uh, the race was on to, to get as many of those uh, paperclip Germans uh, as they could because the Russians were after them as well. But the prize, the the big catch was uh, Werner, Werner von Braun. Right. I think it was from that movie All the Right Stuff about the space race. And uh, one of the astronauts, American astronauts, says to the other, do you think we'll beat the Russians to the moon? And the other one responds, yes, our Nazis are better than their Nazis. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because, right. uh, you, know, you know, the Russians put Sputnik up first before we we put Explorer 1 up. Oh, they were kicking our butt in that regard. Uh, yes. All right. We'll take another one final time out, come back and finish up with Thomas Carey as we take a look inside Wright-Patterson. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Thomas Carey, co-author of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, stays with us for a few moments yet. Uh, we were talking about Operation Paperclip and Werner von Braun. Now, some of these... Uh, Nazi uh, scientists that came over and were working inside Wright Pat. Um, I think in the book you mentioned, uh, and I'm not sure if it was the one who uh, you mentioned in association with von Braun. They went in. They went later to work with in the private sector, like with the Rand Corporation and so forth, didn't they? Oh yes, uh, Rand I believe stands for Research and Development. Uh, yes, they. You know, uh, some went to Lockheed, some went to think tanks like Rand. Uh, uh, you know, they were they were the best uh, in the field. They they were the best in the field. So, you write in the book that all of the UFO debris and the alien bodies were likely cleared out of Wright Pat by the mid nineteen eighties. Why was that, and where do you suppose they ended up? We learned from a fellow who worked at uh, uh, FTD. He, he worked at FTD. And we got that information because we ourselves did not know. We, we knew they got the right, right field, right Patterson. And we knew that there were sightings of individual bodies being autopsied at various places around the country in subsequent years, suggesting that they were lending them out for study. 
But uh, this fellow that worked at uh, FTD, he said pretty uh, uh, knowledgeably, at least he appeared, that uh, the bodies uh, left right Patterson in the early 80s, about 1982, 83, for Area 51. So we take his word uh, that at least, you know, that's what he said that they went to Area 51. And the reason was because uh, Wright-Patterson, Dayton, Ohio, was getting too built up around Wright-Patterson. And uh, uh, they couldn't, they were fearful of testing aircraft in that congested or that uh, metropolitan area and have one crash in, in people's uh, neighborhoods. So they needed something, a place more open. And especially with the testing of these, at the time, uh, high-altitude spy planes. And then later on, the stealth aircraft. The uh, the area around uh, Wright Field, Wright Day, uh, in Dayton, was too built up at this time. Plus, there were too many rumors going on about what was there of an extraterrestrial nature. Uh, to use a, an acronym, the place got too hot. The place got too hot, and they had to do something. So they got rid of at least the bodies. Probably some of the wreckage uh, went elsewhere. But uh, right now, the, the, where the where the, at least the Roswell bodies are, we had a former head of FTD named George Weinbrenner, General George Weinbrenner, on his deathbed, told somebody that uh, we have five. We have five of them in Utah. That would be at the at Dugway. We believe that the Roswell, the five Roswell cadavers, are at Dugway. Uh, test. It was, it's like an Area 51, but in uh, uh, Utah. Uh, if there are other bodies, uh, I don't know about where. You know, there there are plenty of places they could be. You know, but uh, my my. My own focus was Roswell, where where they might be, and we uh, we believe that they're currently in uh, Utah. Uh, subsequent to uh, to Roswell, um, do you do you know? Do you have knowledge that other UFO crash uh, debris um, materials were taken to Wright Pat post forty seven? Yes, uh, I myself have always been skeptical of additional crashes. But we have a chapter in the book that, that discusses exactly that, Richard. Uh, I'd have to look at the the book to, to tell you which chapter that is, but we have a chapter. It's based on the work of Leonard Stringfield, who in 1978 uh, broke the crash barrier. Up until that point, talking about uh, bodies or extraterrestrial beings and crashes was taboo even amongst ufo buffs but he broke the crash barrier in 1978 because he had so many friends he lived in cincinnati he had so many friends at dayton that lived in dayton had worked at Wright, and had heard all the rumors that he started putting together these these monographs uh called the, um, oh my goodness, uh, there were eight of them, 
and it was all they were all eight were about UFO crashes. And uh, he died in 1994 after his uh, uh, last one. And uh, so we have a whole chapter based on Leonard Stringfield's work, what uh, people told him. Now, the thing about Leonard was that uh, he didn't name his sources, which is unfortunate because we certainly would would follow up to corroborate or, you know, debunk uh, whatever the case may be, but to interview the witnesses. But he did not name in his monographs that he did not give the names. And uh, it turns out that one of them was Jesse Marcel. That was one of the early ones was Jesse Marcel. And another fellow who we nicknamed uh, Tim was a fellow by the name of Lloyd Thompson, who we we knew about, uh, was also at uh, 509th Bomb Group. But uh, we did learn the name of one of the doctors who uh, was there at the autopsy of, of the one of the aliens from Roswell. So we did learn a few of them, but it's all in our it's all in that chapter. Uh, I think it's called Le- Leonard Stringfield and the Little Green Men. I think is the title of the chapter. So, as far as the uh, additional crashes, uh, he has the uh, stories that he has in there suggest strongly of a number of additional UFO crashes. Now, I myself have not investigated any of those because Roswell uh, proved to be a labor-intensive undertaking. We've spent the last quarter century solely on Roswell because there were so many witnesses. We have hundreds that know their little piece of the story. None of them uh, go beyond their little piece of the story. And it was our job, like a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle, to put them all together into a uh, coherent narrative, which I believe that we have done. And the second part of that narrative is what happened at Wright-Patterson after the material and the bodies were taken there. Well, uh, Thomas... I know that uh, Stanton is looking down and uh, <laughs> and thinking uh, about you and uh, and Don and saying to himself, a job well done, a job well done. UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. How can people get a hold of the book? The uh, the main uh, the Barnes and Noble, of course, is our uh, uh, book book distributors, Barnes and Noble. And most people uh, go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. You can get it there. Uh, I'd have to check to see if you can get it through our website. But most people, I know myself, when I order a book, uh, uh, non, non-UFO non book, uh, I, I go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And uh, uh, you can uh, take a look at our website, uh, www.roswellinvestigator.com. And uh, that's uh, pretty much where these days you can buy your books. I, I, I suspect you buy your books at Amazon, too. I, when, I, when possible, I like to buy them directly from the author. Uh, so, uh, yeah, people should go to <laughs> roswellinvestigator.com first uh, to, make sh- to see if, if they can get yes. the book there. That would be good. Thomas, what yes. a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you uh, for UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. 
Thank you, Richard. It, uh, it was a distinct pleasure uh, uh, talking to you. All right, that's it for me. Next week on the program, The Science of Spirit Possession for the full two hours. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Back with uh, Thomas Carey, and he is with us for the full two hours talking about UFO secrets inside Wright-Patterson eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. The co-author is Don Schmidt, who joined us last week on the program. Thomas, we were talking about uh, Nitinol. Uh, which was reverse engineered from this um, memory material uh, that I, many of us first heard about from Jesse Marcel Jr. because he remembers his father, Jesse Sr., who was the intelligence officer at the 509, bringing this big box of uh, debris uh, into the kitchen. And he sat down and he was, I guess, kind of playing with it. He also talked about, of course, the I-beam with those strange hieroglyphics on it. Uh, and you talk about sort of the four types of wreckage that were taken to Wright Pat. Uh, we mentioned the memory material. Uh, I just talked about the I beam. Uh, what else? What else? What were the other two types? Uh, there was, of course, there was metal that was unbendable, you know, very thin, unmet, unbendable, couldn't destroy it. They took a 15 pound sledgehammer to it, just bounced off. So you had the rigid metal. The memory metal, uh, the eye beams, and you had things that uh, reminded uh, people of what today we call uh, uh, monofilaments. You know uh, uh, that 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 you send uh, instead of uh, wire. You know, which is like this. I forget, do I got that right? Monofilaments. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Or fil- fiber, like a fiber optic kind fiber, of fiber. That's it. See, when you get old, uh, Richard, you <laughs> can't come up. Um, yeah, fiber optics. Yes, that was the other one. And I may be leaving one or two out, but uh, I think I think uh, Jesse talked about bake, something that was like Bakelite, Bakelite right. material. And I don't I don't know what that would be, but uh, he said it was like Bakelite. And uh, that's uh, pretty much most of it was this memory metal, and of course there was the uh, the, the the inner part of the ship, the inner cabin we call it, or a, an escape pod. It was an egg-shaped craft, seamless, about the size of a, a Volkswagen Beetle, egg-shaped, that went another thirty-five miles and came to rest closer to Roswell. So uh, and uh, so that that was when the craft exploded, everything went to smithereens. And that's what came down on the rancher Mac Brazel's uh, sheep pasture. But the inner cabin or escape pod, we don't know which one it was that survived the the explosion. 
whether it was internal or external, we don't know. We speculate that it might have been uh, lightning, a lightning strike. That's speculation. But that came to rest another 35 miles uh, from the debris field. So that's pretty much uh, just thinking about it. We we list we list the different types of wreckage in the book. Yes, and uh, I think that's pretty much. Yeah, I think you I think you covered uh, the the four main ones, but of course you re- and you refer to the memory material as the Holy Grail. Uh, you know why? No, because any of the other types of uh, wreckage you would have to send out to get it analyzed and even when even when it's analyzed and if it comes back that it's otherworldly oh no you, you did something wrong it's not uh you know you know what i mean right but the memory metal you can say okay here's a piece of memory metal watch what i do to it and you hold it up and it, it just unfurls itself and it just floats there you say oh my goodness we don't have we still don't have anything like that so that's why it's the Holy Grail, because you you can tell in an instant that we don't have anything like that. Where the other stuff, you got to send it out, and it's months and months and months, and everybody's forgotten about it. And you say, oh, whatever happened to that uh, piece of uh, metal that uh, so-and-so sent out? And so that's why we're looking for the memory metal, not that other stuff. We'll, right. We'll take anything. You know, <laughs> we'll take anything. But the, the memory metal is the most – it was the most uh, numerous uh, pieces of wreckage. It was the memory metal. And it's also the easiest to uh, tell that it's really something that we don't have yet. Uh, at, at, at what point and in what capacity did Yuri Geller get involved? Oh, my goodness. Yuri Geller, uh, the, the mentalist, uh, they conducted uh, – this was in the uh, – uh, Dr. Wang, I believe, was in charge of this. Uh, he was trying to – it had to do with the, the, the memory metal and whether they could activate uh, mentally – this uh, this memory metal in some way either make it bend or something like that. It was and uh, uh, Doctor Wang actually admitted that uh, he had uh, Yuri uh, Yuri Geller uh, in for this uh, project, but he, he absolutely didn't want to talk about it. But the, the idea was that the ship maybe was was piloted or driven by some sort of mental activity uh, rather than a, a shifter you know and a steering wheel that it was all mental and uh, that that wasn't the chapter i wrote but that, that's 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 uh, pretty much uh, uh yuri geller was involved in that uh, from the with the with the dr wang project and uh, i don't know what became of it uh but it, the idea of uh you know, maybe the ship was maybe it was all mental is something that people consider. Right. You mentioned the Nitinol, which, you know, was a reverse engineering as best we could, as you put it, of the uh, this memory material. Uh, then we had these rumors that things like 
uh, you know, transistors. We had transistor radios. Uh, there, there didn't seem to be any sort of transition between the vacuum tube and these transistor radios. So some people speculated that was a, a gift from the Roswell UFO crash. Things like, uh, well, you, we mentioned fiber optic cable, night vision binoculars. Uh, how likely, Jeff, Jeff how likely, yeah, how likely <laughs> is that given the fact that again, you know, such a conundrum trying to apply 1940s terrestrial science to this advanced technology. Well, here, here's the thing, Richard, is uh, I hate to say uh, that uh, armed conflict, uh, uh, i.e. wars, there's a benefit. There's, so one of the benefits of war, and I hate to use that term, is that there are new developments in all of these areas, uh, not necessarily what we're talking about, but new things are developed. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, I had an operation uh, some years ago uh, called a colostomy, where they take part of your large intestine out. I had a perforated, uh, uh, what do you call them things, uh, diverticulum. I would have died, but uh, it's it came from the battlefield. Wounded soldiers that were 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 uh, shot in the you know they have, you punctured their large intestine, so they would cut out the part that was you know damaged and they tap back together again, and uh, that came from war. So there are things that come from uh, developed during uh, wars. Now, 1947, you're two years post-World War II. Uh, things like transistors and all that stuff, it's, in my view anyway, it, it's, uh, I'm not discounting it, but it's speculation. Um, whereas for me, the nitinol, again, there was no history whatsoever of any studies of self-healing metal, shape-shifting metal, prior to after the Roswell crash with this memory metal. But things like uh, Kevlar, even Velcro, they say, oh, Velcro came from the Roswell crash. Um, uh, night, night vision goggles. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Uh, I don't – there's just not enough – for me, uh, substantiation for those things, uh, it, you know, you can speculate, uh, but there has to be more, more, more substantive uh, evidence of that, at least for me. All right, Thomas, we'll take another quick time out. We'll come back, begin hour two. We'll talk about Colonel Philip Corso the day after Roswell. We'll talk about Operation Paperclip. Werner Von Braun comes to write Pat. Back with more of my conversation with Thomas Carey right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio in Toronto. 
those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations, and those who stream us on zoomerradio.ca or the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app. Those of you who subscribe to the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. We are back with Thomas Carey co-author along with Don Schmidt of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. We mentioned earlier the uh, the Foreign Technology Division, previously known as T2 at Wright-Pat, uh, where aircraft belonging to, to adversaries were taken, certainly during the Cold War. They tried to reverse engineer it. Then along comes Colonel Philip Corso, uh, talking about his work at the, uh, uh, the foreign technology division. How much of the day after Roswell, how much of his account is, is credible? That's a good question. Uh, we, for some reason, we always get questions about Corso because I think as far as UFO books go, that a lot of people read that book the day after Roswell. And uh, what I didn't like about the book was that there were no footnotes or endnotes. Nothing was substantiated. It was like a fiction book, but it was nonfiction. No index. Uh, uh, but uh, the th- what he... What he's and he uh, he also tricked uh, Senator Strom Thurmond into writing a forward for the book. Thur- uh, Strom Thurmond didn't know it was a UFO book, and he made all these glowing comments about uh, Corso. As soon as he found out that it was a UFO book, he said, "Take t- I'm out of this. Take take me out of this." So uh, he 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 fooled. Uh, Strom Thurmond. The other things, uh, like he mentioned, the bodies going to Fort Riley in Kansas. Uh, we we don't have any knowledge of that. I mean, we pretty much know where the bodies went and when they went and how many there were. But he's got them at Fort Riley, Kansas, and uh, at a date when they were still out in the field. Uh, things like that. And also, he was a lieutenant colonel, if I recall. And this would be too big of a project to run for a lieutenant colonel, at least in my opinion. And I think that he was working for General Trudeau, who was the guy's name. And uh, Trudeau says, oh, we got this uh, we got this cabinet over here full of uh, Roswell files. Uh, see what you get. You know, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what what are you doing here? Uh, it just, the whole thing to me just did not hang together. Now, Corso had, a, I guess, a distinguished military career. Uh, a lieutenant colonel is, is, I mean, there are plenty of them. They're, the, the next grade full colonel is really, you really are somebody. Anything below, anything below full colonel is sort of, it's almost, you know, sometimes the, uh, the, it's a gift that they give you a, a lieutenant colonel rating, but I just thought the, the the rating for that project was should have been in a higher uh, uh, grade 
classification. But right, like General Twining, who ended up, as you say, chair of the Joint Chiefs. Y- yes, yes. Uh, Corso, uh, we thank him for his service, but I, uh, I don't know what he was looking at. And uh, a lot of the stuff in there, to me, read like a fiction. And uh, and like I said, the, uh, he was in charge of the back engineering projects, I guess. But like I said, the the only the only project that I know that has been substantiated, we have a we have the uh, progress reports from Battelle Institute to Wright Wright Patterson. We have those progress reports, and. Uh, you know, thanks to our associate in Florida, Anthony, uh, Anthony Bregalia. But the Corso, you're just relying on him. And uh, the, the, the thing in his favor, though, is he seemed to have had a good life. He didn't need this to, to make, you know, make a name for himself. He had a fine military career. And uh, going, making uh, th- statements like he did is going out on a limb. So in that in that respect, uh, I have to consider it because uh, he was out on a limb when he didn't have to be. Can you even place him based on your research? Can you place him at Wright-Patterson? No. I, uh, I, uh, we can't. What's interesting is about that book is The Day After Roswell, that book – from my understanding, is what led our former uh, defense minister, deputy prime minister, uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer, to first seriously delve into the whole UFO ET issue. It was that very book. It was, that was a New York Times bestseller. The, the goal of every author is to get on the New York Times bestseller list, and that book was made it. And I'm trying to think of another UFO book that did, and I can't. So a lot of people read that book, and uh, uh, I, I didn't know Paul Hellyer, uh, that, that was his inspiration, but, uh, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to take a minute. We didn't do this in hour one, but we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the eight, uh, 18 building complex, A through G and Hangar 23, uh, but just kind of give us a sense of the the size and the scope of Wright Patterson above ground and below. <laughs> well, I was never there. Don has been there. I have never been there. But going by uh, some of the witnesses that we talked to, they felt that most of ninety percent of Wright Patterson is underground because you drive around, you see an empty field, but you see these air vents coming up out of the ground. So. It's in our book of people who've gone to write Patterson that they're they're struck by uh, the the fact that they, there's a lot of open space, but they have these signs that uh, that the, uh, and the percentage that we heard was like ninety like ninety percent of uh, Wright Patterson is, is underground, and we do have statements in the book from fellows who they're dead now, but uh, actually helped build the the various subterranean levels and uh and they saw things down there and so you know it's it it, it's a it was a i guess it still is a a strategic air command base a sac base but uh they 
you know, they, they want to have things uh, bomb-proofed so they can uh, function if we're ever attacked. And so a lot of it is uh, in uh, uh, in subterranean vaults and caverns and things like that. And what's interesting is this uh, Hangar 23 slash 18. We know there are at least four subterranean levels to that. We would have had vaults back there, and uh, someone even said they saw an aircraft down there. But in recent years, I find this interesting, all of that has been cemented over. Ah. All of that has been cemented over, so you can't get down to any of those uh, lower levels where all the action was. And uh, I just find that interesting. But but part of Wright Pad is open to the public, right? To tourists and students yes, and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. That, they have uh, our last chapter is called the the. Uh, it's something about. Let me <laughs> look at the look at it. it's uh, in the shadow of ghosts. Yes, in the shadow of ghosts is our last chapter. It's about uh, uh, visitors to uh, Wright Patterson today. Uh, the the base is full of ghosts uh, from things like what we're talking about. And uh, a lot of people uh, ask about Hangar 18. Hangar 18 is the number one uh, question they have. And, uh, of course, uh, there never was one. But uh, uh, they will – some of them will admit that uh, there were things stored there. But they they don't know any more than that. So I want to take some time and, and talk about the late Senator Barry Goldwater and and his. Uh, well, it seemed like for for uh, decades he tried desperately uh, to take a peek inside Wright Pat. <laughs> uh, I mean, and here is the you know the uh, a distinguished senator from Arizona who sat on the Armed Services Committee, the Aeronautical and Space Sciences Committee. He was the chair of the the Strategic Nuclear Forces Committee, and yet he asks to go see. Wright Patterson, and he's shut down. Now, who is this General Curtis LeMay, and how and why does he have the power to tell Senator Goldwater, you're not allowed? Well, he was the Air Force Chief of Staff. That was his power. (laughs) Uh, uh, Curtis uh, Bombs Away LeMay was a, a hero from World War II. And by 1961... He rose to become the Air Force Chief of Staff with four stars, and that's a full general. That's not like a that's not a five star. It's a full four star general. So he's Air Force Chief of Staff. Barry Goldwater is a respected senator uh, from New Mexico, uh, uh, Arizona, uh, Arizona, in the U.S. Senate, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So he's a powerful man. And he was respected on both sides of the aisle, unlike today's politics. Uh, and um, he was also a, a UFO buff. And uh, he was also a major general, that's two stars, in the Air Force Reserve. So he's wearing a, several hat, hats. He's a U.S. senator. He's a general in the Air Force Reserve, man of great 
talent, and uh, he ran for president in 1964. He lost uh, to Lyndon Johnson uh, in a landslide, which was the post uh, Kennedy assassination first election after that. So a lot, a lot of sympathy going there. So um, he's out in uh, Wright Patterson, and then we figure this is 1963 now. 1963, because LeMay was chairman of the uh, chief of staff from 1961 to 1965 when he retired. So uh, this is 1963, and so Goldwater's at Wright-Patterson, and he's heard about uh, Roswell from his good friend, William Blanchard, General Blanchard. He's a, he was a colonel back in '47 at uh, the base be, uh, on the base. The 509, yeah, 509th Bomb Group and base commander. He was a full colonel, and uh, he rises to four stars himself at a by age 50. Blanchard has four stars. He's going to be the next chief of staff, next chief of staff uh, in the Air Force. He dies at age 50 as the vice chief of staff in 1966. So, but Goldwater learned about Roswell and this so-called blue room at Wright-Patterson where all the alien artifacts were stored. That was the rumor. So he's at Wright-Patterson. He said, huh. I wonder if I, uh, you know, I'm interested in flying saucer. I heard about this. I'm going to call up LeMay just to make sure. I. He says, General, I'm, I'm here at Wright-Patterson. I've heard about this room where you have all of this alien stuff. Might I get go in there? And he said it was the first time you ever heard LeMay lose it because they were good friends. He said he dressed me up. One side and down the other. No, you can't go in there. Hell no, you can't go in there. I can't go in there. And don't you ever ask me that again, or I'll see that you're court-martialed. Well, thank goodness they were friends, huh? Oh, my God. So, <laughs> yeah, some friend. <laughs> yes. So uh, Goldwater said he tried a few more times there, but then he finally gave up. He couldn't get anywhere. And uh, the, whether it was... Uh, uh, LeMay himself could not get in there. Maybe, maybe it was just to put an exclamation point on what he was saying, but maybe also he was banned as well by whoever was controlling that, and we don't know who that is uh, himself, so we don't know. But uh, we heard it from another witness who was there at the time. He says, boy, that was the, that was the buzz on the base for a couple of days that Goldwater was turned down by LeMay from going into this uh, blue room. Now, getting back to uh, to Colonel William Blanchard, uh, the commanding officer at the 509 in Roswell during the UFO incident, and he tells Goldwater, what, that everything that you've heard about Roswell is true? Well, yes. I mean, uh, he's not going to lie to Goldwater. I mean, uh, they're good friends. They're both Air Force generals. And uh, so, and he knew that uh, that uh, Goldwater was a UFO buff, but interested in UFOs. And uh, you know, whether he was on a flight somewhere, we don't know. 
But that's where Goldwater learned about the Blue Room and about the the artifacts and Roswell, that Roswell was real. It was from his good friend. And he says that Blanchard was his good friend. So uh, that's who he learned it from. And as you say, Blanchard was kind of fast-tracked to go to the top, but died of, a, I think it was a massive heart attack at his desk yes, at the age of 50. Are we sure it, that was a heart attack, Thomas? Yeah, well – uh, that's what that's what we're told. He, it was at his desk. And what's interesting, see, is uh, Blanchard is a West was a West Point graduate. He was a football and ice hockey star uh, for for your Toronto uh, visitors uh, uh, listeners. Blanchard was an ice hockey star as well as a football star. He was six foot four or six foot five, which was tall in those days. He had movie star good looks. Every other officer in the Air Force knew that he was going to be chief of staff someday. You know how it is that you have that sun spotlight on you. That And he couldn't wait to get rid of that. When the Roswell crash happened, he could not wait to have someone else take that over. Uh, Ramey, Ramey took it over, Roger Ramey. Right. And uh, even Ramey knew that Blanchard would surpass him one day in rank. And... Uh, so Blanchard was happy that someone else took over this because he didn't want anything on his record that would, uh, you know, dismirch, dismirch his record to the top. And that's that's what his eye uh, he had the eye on the prize, which was chief of staff. What would that have meant, though, for disclosure? Just think of we have we have the, the commanding officer at the 509 during Roswell who is admitted to. You know, the former chair of uh, some very powerful Senate committees that every, you know, Roswell is true. There were aliens. There was UFOs. They crashed. They were taken to Wright-Patterson. And now all of a sudden, you know, we have Blanchard as a ultimately becoming, you know, maybe a full four-star general on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, what would that have meant to have a guy like that in that position? What would that have meant for disclosure? he divorced. He did not want to be his name in the same paragraph as UFOs or Ros- he wanted to get as far away from that Roswell thing as he could, because uh, Roswell UFOs is still a taboo subject to people in the limelight, whether you're talking, especially politicians. Uh, they don't want to don't put my name in that story. Except he'd already told he'd already told Goldwater, and then Goldwater writes about it in a book. So the cat's out of the bag. Well, uh, uh, Blanchard was already dead. True. Uh, true. Yeah. So you know, I mean, we we Blanchard was written about in 1980 in the Roswell incident. Uh, so he he's dead and buried. So it's. You know, that can't hurt him anymore. No, no. But uh, had he, I'm just wondering, had he lived, though? And oh, those, had he lived? Yeah. Uh, UFOs is is uh, viewed as an impediment. If you're looking to rise. Right. Uh, it's especially in the military, where this is still, you know, the, the, Air, the Air Force position is that it was a Project Mogul balloon. And that the little bodies were these... Uh, Dime store mannequins from this. That's mannequins. Right, that, right. That's their official position. You don't want to go challenging that if you want to go up to the top. You want to show that you're a team player. So 
wouldn't have meant it wouldn't have meant anything he would have denied it or he would have maybe had he lived he would have told barry hey you know do me a favor don't just leave my name out of that book i'll I'll give you another example uh senator joseph montoya from new mexico yes back in in 47 was the lieutenant governor of new mexico thomas can i just get you to hold that story for the next segment Because I love this story. It's a great one. Hold on. We'll come back. Thomas Carey, as we continue to delve into Wright-Patterson, the real Area 51, right here on The Conspiracy Show. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.